Welcome to Right Rising, a podcast from the Center for the Analysis of the Radical Right. I'm your host, Augusta DeLemo. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Megan Squire, a professor of computer science at Elon University. She's here with us today to talk to us about how white nationalists are using video streaming to make money. Megan, thanks for being here. Yeah, my pleasure. So I wanted to start off for those that are not super familiar with video streaming. What is video streaming? What are the main sites and what are they traditionally used for? Yeah, so video streaming is kind of a, a new add-on to social media platforms um, that would where you would have traditionally just watched a video. Maybe it's canned, maybe it's recorded several days or months ago, years ago. Now you can watch those videos live as the content creators make them. Sometimes they have additional features too, like um, chatting to the person making the video. And so there's a little bit of interplay there, which you wouldn't get in a canned um, pre-recorded video. You can see stuff like that, these live videos on Facebook and YouTube, but they're um, increasingly also shown on smaller, more niche platforms. So uh, Twitch is a popular one uh, with gaming communities and kind of the younger crowd. Um, and one that I have my eye on is called DLive, which is a distributed live video streaming service. It uses a cryptocurrency underneath as well. And for most of the, you know, I've, I'm familiar with Twitch as a, as a gaming platform. Who is, what is DLive's like primary community that uh, is using it? Yeah, DLive is kind of a um, competitor to Twitch in a way, but it adds this um, financial portion as well. So instead of just streaming kind of for free <laughs> and then trying to sell ads or sell merchandise on the side, um, DLive has this cryptocurrency aspect where you can earn um currency, the, the branded currency from the platform um, by both creating content and then by consuming content as well. So everybody's kind of making these uh, small amounts of money, which you can then redistribute on the platform or cash out for real dollars for other currencies. <laughs> Thanks for that, Megan. Just because, you know, video streaming is, is such a new service and I think people are really familiar with it in uh, a gaming sense or, you know, you have Instagram influencers that are doing a live stream. But how do white nationalists use video streaming sites to make money? Kind of the big question. Yeah, white nationalists are using this services the same way that other people are. They're either um, using them to sell merchandise from a, you know, a store or something like that, t-shirts, books, that kind of thing. And so they would use the stream to just talk about that and kind of build up their um, brand. And then you would you know, travel out to this other store and buy that stuff. But more frequently, they're actually using the streams um, to do what I call monetized propaganda. So they'll talk for hours and hours and hours and build up a rapport with their audience, maybe comment on the news or whatever it is they're doing, um, you know, propagandizing. And then they're taking donations while that's going on. And sometimes they're directly um, taking donations for shout outs on um, the chat. They call those super chats or um, they're, they're taking donations just um, for subscriptions to the stream. So in other words, every um, you'll get notified every time there's a new stream out, that kind of stuff. And when they're using these streams, um, how much of this sh shift to streaming can really be tied to the pandemic? And what ways were white nationalists making money online before? Um, not a whole lot is tied to the pandemic, actually, that I can tell. Um, it seems like the streaming was already kicking up uh, in this crowd before the pandemic. What I, Some of the data is a little bit confusing, though, because this, one of the services, DLive, that I've been tracking really closely, also went through a cryptocurrency change in the middle of 
of April, which was right around the time when a lot of the reopen stuff was happening and shutdowns and just all of that kind of chaos. Um, so it's a little bit hard to tease out how much of the bump in traffic um, and money was due to pandemic video stream upticks versus um, just the cryptocurrency change and um, you know pre- there were different events that happened that gave them press and things like that. So, um, but yeah, I don't see a whole lot tied to the pandemic, but the video streaming had been ticking up as a um, platform for these guys for several years already. Yeah. And, um, were they, this use of the, the streaming, right? You're, you're talking about this, the shift was already occurring. Is that because of, I know there's been a lot recently about deplatforming, trying to get them off certain platforms, you know, Twitch and, um, D live, these are newer platforms that maybe don't have the same, um, barriers to entry, maybe as some of these other bigger platforms are trying to establish. So, um, is this shift to streaming? What would drove that shift is my question. Well, streaming has gotten popular with all groups, not just the bad actors online. Right. But, um, so the, the bad actors go to the platforms first that look like they're the most fun and have the most audience. So YouTube, Facebook, that kind of stuff. As they get kicked off of those platforms, they want to continue streaming because they realize that it can be lucrative and or and just fun for them too. So then they move to the more niche platforms. I mean, all of the streamers that I'm tracking that are making any kind of serious cash on this started on YouTube, were deplatformed and then moved to DLive. Uh, very few of them would go to a niche platform um, first. It just doesn't have the, the eyeballs, the audience um, that they that they want. So, And when we're talking about the kind of money that they're making, do we have any idea about who is donating and from where? Are these typically smaller or larger donations? And then... Could you give us a sense of how much money these groups are actually making on these platforms? Yeah, so this is what I've been studying for months and months and months at this point. Um, Spending hours looking at this, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, the data is crazy. Um, It's really hard to tell. I started on YouTube trying to answer that question there. It's really hard to tell how much people are making on there without physically watching the stream and just jotting down the super chat amounts. But I did do that for a little while. Um, They were making a few hundred dollars an hour, depending on how popular the streamer was. Um, as they move to DLive, the, the calculus changes a little bit. The equations change. Um, they, we're dealing with a cryptocurrency now, so there's some um, conversions that take place. A little bit more complicated um, math and stuff. But what I'm looking at is um, uh, anywhere from a couple thousand dollars a month, a couple hundred dollars a month on the low end to there's several streamers that are um, on DLive, right-wing extremist streamers who are making over $10,000 a month in donations. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty serious money. If you think about them trying to make that much money selling t-shirts or merchandise, it's kind of ridiculous. One person might buy a $20 t-shirt, right? But you can get 200 mm-hmm. people to spend a dollar on these platforms. So, Right. Um, yeah. And when you when you uh, spent inordinate hours looking at these streams, did it... Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, as scholars, we try and figure out where is the money coming from? Is it coming in small donations or big donations? Like when you're, when you're looking at the data, is it a lot of small donations or one or two people that are very committed that would donate 5,000 at a time? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, most of the donations are tiny. They're a few hundred dollars a day for some of the top streamers, you know, up to a thousand dollars a day. Um, they are in small numbers, but there are people who there are big donors and small donors, even um, even in this community. So there's one guy that, that I'm looking at that uh, 
donates pretty frequently and he's, he's donated several thousand dollars to, to numerous streamers each. So, um, one of the, one of the guys the other day on his live stream actually referred to that donor as a Soros level donor. (laughs) That was a really unfortunate comparison, but, um, yeah, so even the streamers know that they have, you know, quote unquote, big money donors, um, people who, who they can count on to give them a few hundred dollars, uh, sometimes per day. So. And are these streams explicitly designed to raise money for the far right or do they serve other purposes as well? I know you mentioned that, you know, they're, they're going on these multi-hour long brands that it's more than just selling t-shirts. So what are they really hoping to do with the streams? Is it just about money or does it have other purposes for them as well? Yeah. I mean, from the platform point of view, they're not designing these platforms for, for alt-right streamers. Unfortunately though, some of the top streamers, in fact, the top streamers on DLive, for example, are the, the right-wing extremists, the, the number one earners, number one and number two earners um, on those platforms are, are white nationalists. So um, that's unfortunate. As far as from the streamer's point of view, yeah, they're, this is a money-making opportunity. It builds their brand, it keeps their audience, it inculcates people to the correct vocabulary, the correct view on whatever news is breaking and things like that. So it's, it's propaganda, it's recruitment. And then, of course, it's money making. Well, and I I also feel like, you know, one of the things that you mentioned of the platforms being exciting and and fun to to people is programs like Twitch, um, they they definitely cater towards a younger audience, right? Like you don't really see um, middle age people like, oh, I'm going to go on Twitch. That's definitely a younger crowd. So I also imagine it could be a recruiting tool to get this sort of white nationalist propaganda, especially to younger audiences. That's absolutely true. Um, it, the, the streaming attracts a younger audience and everything about these streaming sites uh, attracts younger. I mean, from the, the u- user interface, I'm looking at the, uh, you know, the default avatar is a little cartoon sticker guy holding a sword. The, you know, the, the um, jargon on the site when they refer to bundles of um, these cryptocurrency, they have, they call them ninjaginis and ninjets and stuff. It was just a childish sort of like, um, silliness to the whole platform. And I guess that helps um, distract from the, from what's actually going on here. So you're, you know, you're listening to the streamer um, being completely racist for hours at a time on a site that's, you know, candy colored and has cartoons all over it. It's a little bit jarring, but um, that, um, you know, sort of covering a dirty message with lightheartedness and joking, I think that is something we've seen for years is, um, you know, what, this younger kind of crowd is, is doing um, to hide the message, hide the message a little bit. Completely. And I, and I wanted to, to go back to something that you mentioned earlier about cryptocurrency. Um, as someone that is not incredibly familiar with cryptocurrency, <laughs> can you talk a little bit about one, what that is? Um, because I think that's sort of a, people like to talk about cryptocurrency and don't actually know what cryptocurrency is. So could you break down what that is really briefly for us, and then talk about why it's important for white nationalists. So cryptocurrencies are going to be a distributed way of um, trading money between people. They are decentralized, which means there's no one um, entity in charge of the currency usually. In terms of the streaming platforms, when we say that they are built on top of or are using a cryptocurrency, so for example, DLive, um, they have their own uh, currency on the site that you earn and spend um, doing different tasks on the site. And then it, when you cash out, you can um, change that into one of these decentralized um, cryptocurrencies, or you can change it into 
actual money. One of the features about cryptocurrencies that makes them um, convenient for white nationalist types or people who are in, involved in clandestine movements is that because they're decentralized and sort of semi-anonymous or anonymizable, I guess, um, they give us they give a, a veneer of um, of anonymity or of, of untraceability. And because they're not controlled by a bank or another um, sort of centralized entity, these um, far right type extremist groups uh, risk less deplatforming than they would say on a site like pay, you know, trading money on a site like PayPal or um, Venmo or what have you. So they like them for that reason. Um, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. No, I, Megan, I think that's a great describe. explanation. It's really it hard to describe cryptocurrency. Yeah, yeah, it's like, please, please describe the entirety of cryptocurrency in 30 seconds or less. No, no, no. Yeah, no, I, I completely, I think that that's a great explanation. And it also really fits with what we know about right-wing extremists is they, they really see themselves as operating outside the state, outside of traditional platforms, traditional monetary schemes. Something like cryptocurrency conceptually makes sense that, they, that it would really appeal to them as, you know, they're, they're getting out from under the state. They're not using banks. You know, all of that really fits in with their ethos, right? Yeah, it, there's a downside too, though, for them. I mean, cryptocurrencies are certainly less convenient, right? They're a little bit more considered kind of offbeat or weird. So there is that kind of um, unnormal. It's not normal to use a cryptocurrency. People would rather pay with a regular credit card, right? So you have to onboard your people. You have to explain how to use it. And then you have to renormalize it so they don't think that they're doing something sketchy or weird. So um, so there, there is that aspect to it. There's some good things about uh, when these groups use cryptocurrencies, though. One of them is, especially on a site like DLive that's built up upon one, um, the transaction ledgers of, of who's paying who for what is all public um, on most cryptocurrencies. And so it's very easy for someone like me who's doing data analysis. Um, it's kind of exciting for me to be able to look at all of that, because if they were using um, you know, sort of private banks, I wouldn't have access to see a lot of the finances and what was going on. Um, I guess Venmo is the exception there because that's public by default, but most uh, money platform, money-based platforms are not, um, not, the data is not public. Cryptocurrencies are the um, welcome exception to that. So. It's great for us as, <laughs> as researchers as we, you know, try and wrap our uh, analysis tentacles around them, right? You know, trying to figure out all of these different avenues that they're making money, how they're moving their ideas and you know connecting all of that is a lot easier with this kind of big data that that you're able to use how big of a problem would you say are these video streams you know do you think this is something that is going to increase do you think you'll see more white nationalist actors migrating towards streaming platforms to make money um yeah Yes, to all of that. They are definitely <laughs> going to be more um, guys moving to these platforms to make money. Uh, there's very little downside for them. There's very little oversight from these niche platforms. In fact, um, one of the one of the principles of the DLive platform was donating the other day to one of these streams, and I was kind of shocked by that. I'm not sure he knew what he was donating to. Maybe he did. Um, but so there's very little oversight and very little pushback on these niche platforms to actors like this. So yes, they're going to be moving here more and more. And then when they find out there's money to be made, that's even more exciting. From the consumer point of view, the, the users that are actually watching this stuff, I mean, they love it. They're able to chat live. They can give tiny donations that the, you know, um, 
streamers enjoy having and they, they get a little interplay back and forth. So yeah, I think this is a, a, a major problem. Um, the streams are sometimes hours long where you can just listen, you can just sort of envelop yourself in Nazi propaganda for hours and hours and at very little cost. So major problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we've talked uh, um, on quite a few occasions on Right Rising and, and Carr really focuses on this as well, this I, this idea of deplatforming. And is deplatforming on these video streaming services possible? I mean, as you just mentioned, there's not a lot of oversight. These big these bigger platforms are moving them towards these smaller platforms where there doesn't seem to be the same impetus to really curtail these groups. So is deplatforming something that would work in this scenario to to minimize the influence of these groups? Yeah, it absolutely does work. Um, most of these groups have been deep and, and individuals have been deplatformed already from sites like YouTube and Facebook and, and Twitter. And so they come to these niche platforms as a last resort. The, those platforms are usually less well-staffed and less knowledgeable about what's happening on their platform and how they're being um, abused, really, by these guys. So that comes to education. We have to, you know, do the study, get the numbers, reach out, you know, see what see what the um, what's going to happen. And a few a few people have already been removed from D Live, so Infowars and Alex Jones, and that was kicked off, um, which is good. But uh, but yeah, there's still a, a quite a few that are remaining. I, and I think in my latest study, I had uh, 72 different accounts that I was tracking on D Live, so extremist accounts. And all of the would you say? All of those are individuals that have been kicked from bigger platforms that have then moved to DLive, or are you seeing sort of any, I don't want to use the term organic here, but white nationalists really getting their start on these DLive Twitch streaming platforms? Yeah, there were a few that I hadn't heard of until they made it big on DLive. Um, there's a little ecosystem where these uh, different actors on, on the streaming platforms will sort of play up each other's streams, will share each other's streams, will donate to each other and subscribe. So there's a little bit of um, sort of propping one another up. Of course, there's the big players too, and, and um, sometimes they don't tend to donate out as much, but certainly in that middle middle band, um, there's quite a bit of, of, of cross-pollination. And so it, it allows, um, you know, maybe someone who doesn't have as much of a brand um, outside the streaming platform to build their brand inside there. So yeah, I've definitely seen that happening. Thanks for that, Megan. And can you tell us a little bit about where you're going next with this, with this research? What questions do you still have about this particular aspect of white nationalist behavior online? Yeah. So I got to continue studying this particular platform for a little bit. I don't think I'm quite done here yet. I only have about six months worth of data. So I'm going to keep collecting there. And then, of course, we have to figure out what to do. So now we see the scope of the problem, right? This is upwards of $10,000 a month for some of these guys. That that can't happen. That can't be. So we have to take it to the platform, figure out what, what they're going to do about it. And if they're not going to do anything about it, we'll have to, you know, figure out, <laughs> figure out our next steps. Um, and then, you know, if the platform does decide that this isn't the kind of content they want to be hosting and enabling, then the streamers probably won't give up. Um, so they'll, they'll go to the next thing. So just, um, it's kind of that eternal game of whack-a-mole, figuring out where they're going to go next. And there already are some, some um, even smaller, even more niche platforms that are springing up ready to, to take on um, you know, the, the leftovers from, from DLive. So I'm, I'm watching those already too. Thank you for, for sharing that with us, Megan. And I think that that last point that you made about how it's just a sort of eternal game of whack-a-mole, you know, 
it's, it's really, it's tough as someone who studies these issues. And I'm sure you felt it too. You feel like all you're doing is playing catch up, right? Like, okay, well, now they've moved over here. Let me go figure out what they're doing over here. Okay. They can't be doing that. We need to go tell someone. And then they appear somewhere else a few months or a year later. And I think this is one of the challenges is trying to talk to people about the kinds of solutions really feel almost like a culture of vigilance, right? That we can't let these actors gain any ground on any of these platforms. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's the job. So I try not to get depressed about that. And instead, I embrace it. So I actually named my uh, my software platform Whack-A-Mole. <laughs> um, Amazing. <laughs> trying to just embrace that that's the job. And I come out of the, um, you know, data mining world, the cybersecurity world. And and that's that's the job there. It's it's eternal, like you said, eternal vigilance. I used to work in an antivirus company way back in the day, and you always felt like you were trying to um, catch up with the bad guys because they were the ones, to, you know, making the viruses that we had to come up with a solution for. And this is no different. Um, we just that that's the job. So I kind of just choose to get used to it and um, and just yeah, embrace it. Awesome. Well, Megan, thank you so much for for joining us today on Right Rising. And for people that want to read more about your work, where can they find out more about what you've written on? Um, my my university website is probably the most comprehensive, but the URL is kind of long. So I guess just go to my Twitter and it's linked from there. I'm Megan Squire Zero on Twitter. Wonderful. Thank you so much for for joining us, Megan. Yeah, it was my pleasure. That was good good discussion. This has been another episode of Right Rising. We'll see you all next time.